you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast with your host, Corey Dion Lewis, primary care health coach and health education specialist. You will learn from health professionals from all over the world on how to plan and take action to improve your health and live with purpose on purpose. Like to work one-on-one with Corey to achieve your goals? Go to healthcoachlou.com or email Corey at Corey at healthcoachlou.com. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I am your host, Corey Dion Lewis. I have a, a great guest in the building today, someone I've been um, really uh, interested in speaking with, uh, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Uh, Dr. Stanford, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. Great. Well, you know, just if you if you don't mind, just kind of start off, uh, just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and mm-hmm. how you got into the the, the field. Yeah, I um, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, That's my home. It will always be my home, despite the fact that I live in Boston, Massachusetts currently. Um, I came into this world pretty early knowing that I wanted to be a physician. So when I say pretty early, it was around the age of three that I decided that I wanted to pursue medicine, slightly older than three now. So um, that actually um, worked out. Um, I, you know, attended the Atlanta public school system. My high school was uh, Benjamin Elijah Mays High School was the Academy of Math and Science. Um, that really gave me early exposure to science, scientific research. Um, many um, of my um, high school classmates wanted to pursue careers in medicine or science. Um, and that was really the early impetus for my entry to like clinical research. So my first um, NIH-funded study came when I was a 10th grader um, at Emory University wow. when I was looking at biochemistry research. And um, I was selected to rep- represent the United States um, at the International Science and Engineering Fair. And so that was my really early introduction to competing with my research. Um, I did my undergraduate um, degree at Emory University in anthropology and biology. I was a dance minor. So I have like kind of two sides of my brain that are always active. Um, so I'm trained in ballet, jazz, West African hip hop and point. Um, I do dance now, but not professionally like I did then um, <laughs> because I spent a lot of time doing just other work, right? Re- regarding my actual career in um, medicine. Um, after I did my undergraduate degree, I did my master's in public health and health policy and management, which I finished 20 years ago um, at Emory. So literally 2001. Um, and then I actually worked in public health. So I worked at the American Cancer Society as behavioral sciences intern. I worked at the CDC and the Office of Women's Health. I helped design the first website for American women. Um, not necessarily design the content. I'm not a designer, right. um, but I can come up with content. Um, and then I worked at a rape crisis center for two years as the director of prevention for the DeCab Rape Crisis Center in Atlanta. And I served as one of the two consultants, the National Center for Victims of Crime for Rape and Sexual Assault for the United States. Um, it was after that that I went to medical school. I went to the Medical College of Georgia. Um, initially, was very interested in orthopedics. So a lot of my research during that time was in orthopedics. Um, did a, a little bit of a non-traditional thing where I did a year of orthopedic surgery sports medicine fellowship um, for the first year after I finished um under, um, I guess, med school in New York City, um, and then switched and then did residencies in both internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of South Carolina, after which I came to Boston to do my three-year obesity medicine and nutrition fellowship here at Harvard Medical School. 
Um, in my last year of that, I did what I thought was my last degree, um, but not um, my mid-career degree as a Zuckerman Fellow in the Harvard Center for Public Leadership. Um, I was at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, came onto the faculty here at Mass Journal and at Harvard um, and then decided why not do a fifth degree. So I will finish my MBA um, on May the 11th if everything goes well. I think everything's almost finished. I have one major project that's left to do. Um, and, you know, in terms of the work that I do, um, obviously, I'm an internist, I'm a pediatrician, I'm an obesity medicine physician, scientist, one of the first fellowship trained obesity medicine physicians in the world. But I also bridge the intersection of looking at disparities, um, being born and raised in Atlanta and Southwest Atlanta, where you have the highest concentration of black physicians um, of anywhere in the country. You can imagine that this has been germane into just who I am as an individual. Um, I was born and raised in John Lewis's congressional district, and it was indeed um, in, I guess, as right as I was finishing my MPH that I received my gold congressional award, which was presented to me by John Lewis. Um, And so, you know, one of the things he said to me was, you know, never stop fighting injustice. And that is something that I don't (laughs) do. I think that people may get frustrated with that. Um, in these parts, but you know, for me, it's it's a, a big part of who I am. I think you know, if I come in the work and just get only the benefit, then I haven't done my job, right? It's not just about me; it's about the greater community. So that's kind of who I am as an individual, and kind of how I got to kind of where I am currently. Um, so hopefully, that gives you some some information. Yeah, what an amazing journey and path, and and. A- yeah so many achievements. So con- first of all, you know, congratulations. That is, that's dope. That is so Thank dope. You. I appreciate it. Um, I know, appreciate you, it. Yeah, no problem. You, you said something as far as, and I'm, I'm really interested in as of late uh, about disparities and, and things like that. How do, you know, in, in your opinion, how do we fix that? How, what, are, what are some of the things we do? We have to change uh, in the system to, to change that. So I think you, I guess, hit the nail on the head. You talked about the system, needing to change the system. You know, I think what ends up happening is that, you know, a lot of the onus is put back on people that look like you and myself, right? Like, oh, okay, well, we'll make you equity director. We'll make you anti-racism director, this, that, and other. I I hold quite a few of these titles, but is it up to me to fix racism? Like, am I going to be racist towards you? I mean, the likelihood right. is pretty low, right? Like you're you're a black person, I'm a black person. It kind of it wouldn't make sense. I mean, I could there there's this whole idea of colorism, right? So if you were, I was a much lighter individual, you know, you could we could we could have that debate. But let's talk about actual racism, right? Like, you know, the likelihood that a black person is racist to another black person is really low, but the likelihood that majority groups, i.e., white individuals, would be racist because of this idea of we being an inferior group is extremely entrenched from day one in how we interact. So we have to like change the whole system from within. So you're seeing groups like the American Medical Association, for example, recognizing that one of its major founders had a strong racist history, taking away those names though, because those names then perpetuate and uplift this concept right. of racism. It's not just name changing. Name changing sounds good. It makes us feel good and warm and fuzzy. But how do we actually entrench it within the organization? So, for example, in my role um, as the anti-racism director here for our neuroendocrine unit, we've actually made it a requirement 
that every faculty and staff, regardless if you're a full professor or if you're the person that checks in people at the front desk um, for an appointment, has to report every four months on what anti-racism education they've done for themselves. You know, it's part of like, now there are probably some people that don't like it, you know, and there are probably some people that are like, oh, this is really great. So you have, you know, kind of these two camps, right? This group over here that's like, oh, this is amazing, right? That's kind of me. This group over here that's like, okay, this is horrible. Most of the people, however, fall in the middle, right? Like that's just generally how things fall, right? That's a bell-shaped curve and you have these people in the middle. The, you don't care about these. It's not that you don't care about the people that are over here that are like, I hate all black people, right? But that, that group is going to be harder to convert. We have to focus here on the middle group, the group that is malleable, the group that we can potentially change. And so I can tell you that when we started this initiative, which was definitely at the height of, you know, us paying attention to George Floyd, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, for example, what you saw was initially it was just a few people. And then it began to balloon. And the people don't look like me because I'm the only person in the division that looks like me. So, and I think it was because they started to read. And, you know, if you're dealing in academics, right, reading and knowledge based upon data can influence decisions. I think in the greater population, it's more emotion, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I get people to feel the pain of what I've experienced being a Black woman in this space? that's what gets them to change in the greater population. But here at Harvard, it's about the science. What does the science show? And so you have people that are reading and they're looking at, oh, wait a minute, Black scientists aren't funded the same. They keep reading the same thing and you start seeing more and more people come into the initiative. They don't have to. That's not a requirement. The requirement is to do just this assignment, right? Every four months, it's on their annual evaluation. But why can't we entrench that into the structure of organizations? Right now in academics, anywhere around the country, there are things that they're going to be looking at to decide if I get promoted, right? Like how many papers have I published? How many lectures have I given? All these types of things. Why can't it be how much disparity, equity, and inclusion work have you done? If you've done zero, you don't get to full professor. If you've done zero, you don't get to associate professor. But that's not one of the criteria by which we're graded. So what you end up seeing are people like myself that do all this work. It doesn't count towards us going up. So we remain here at the low levels, right? Because that work doesn't matter. We need to bring it to a level of promise. promise. And I'm not saying we, we as in Black folk, but we as in the system need to elevate the work that needs to be done because this isn't work that, you know, this has been 400 plus years of things that we have to change. It's not going to change overnight. And my major concern is how sustained will these efforts be? Right now, corporate America, faith-based institutions, all these groups have stepped up to say, oh, we need to raise diversity. We need to be thinking about this. But my concern as someone who's in my 40s now is I've seen these rises, not anything of this prominence, right? But will it just then die down because it's no longer the in vogue thing to do right Right now? There's not a spotlight on it. So once the spotlight kind of dims, everything else kind of dims with it or falls to the wayside. Right. And so I'm like, hmm. And so my concern, and I think this is the concern of any of us that are experts in this space, or even if, if you're just like, just kind of a passive observer, is that this maybe isn't sustainable. Maybe no one cares after the pandemic. Maybe, you know, this just reverts back to where it was. I mean, we've seen um, the rise of hate in this country towards Black people. You know, if we want to talk about what the insurrection was really about, it was about 
this rise in people that look like you and I and people feeling like they don't deserve that, despite the fact that we worked for free in this country for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. and everyone else got a head start and they're wondering why we are behind. So I don't know. I I could uh, keep going on and on there, but those are, (laughs) those are some of my thoughts. Obviously I have strong feelings um, and I'm, I'm willing to voice these publicly because I think it's important for people to hear this. Absolutely. 100% agree. And to, and I hope it, it, it kind of fits in what you're saying. My, my next question or what we've been talking about, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really curious about, I guess, the tone that physicians have with people of color when, so one of my, one of my tasks, one of my responsibilities within the, within the hospital is doing our Medicare annual wellness visits. You know, mm-hmm, I, I do mm-hmm. those. Okay. And it, I had an African-American man and we were, um, I was going over the preventative services that are available to him. Say, Hey man, you're overdue for your colonoscopy. We, we can get a referral for that. He's like, nah, I feel I'm good. And I kind of stopped. And I'm like, I'm trying to explain to him the benefits. He's like, no, because I feel good now when I come to the hospital, they're going to tell me something's wrong with me. Or he just, he didn't feel comfortable going to the hospital. And, and I, I started to since it just started with him, but I started to get this feeling of people that I would speak with who are people of color, not necessarily not wanting to come to the hospital because we're afraid of being sick, but they didn't like how their doc- doctor spoke to them. Or, you know, I, I run a weight management program for pediatric for, for pediatrics, and mm-hmm. I have really upset black moms in my office because of how the doctor told them that their kids needed to see a health coach or whatever the case may be. When you think like, would you talk to someone else that way? Right? No, I mean, I completely agree with you. I do think that, you know, as black physicians, um, we have an understanding about how we want to be treated and how we're treated when we're actually in the healthcare setting. So despite five degrees, two residencies, two fellowships. When I'm in the healthcare setting, I'm treated just like any other black person. Nobody cares about any of that. That doesn't change my narrative. I mean, sometimes they can if people happen to know who I am, but when they see me, they just see a black person. And as a black person, I must be, let's, let's talk about what, what that means, right? I must be an uneducated. I must need to be told what I need to do. I, my opinion, my thoughts about treatment aren't valued and respected. And so when individuals are coming into the setting, if they're often not, which was, I mean, like the number of black physicians in medicine is less than what, five, 5.5%. Um, they're not seeing many people that look like me, right? So when they're interacting, they're expecting it to be somewhat of an adversarial dynamic, right? One in which you need to be told what to do because you and your people don't know how to do stuff, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's the reality. Um, so I think that that's, that's extremely, um, that's, I would say it's extreme, but it's, it's part of the narrative of what we experience every day. And so you may have seen my New England Journal medicine piece where I talk about vaccine distrust mm-hmm. um, that yep. came out in January. And the issue that I talk about is that Yes, there are historical atrocities that have occurred. Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, J. Marion Sims, we can keep going. But those aren't the things that people are thinking about. They're thinking about what did they experienced yesterday. Yep. 
right? Like if you went to the hospital yesterday and you were treated a certain way, you're not thinking about, oh, but you know what? Back when they did the Tuskegee experiment, you're thinking about what did you just feel yesterday? What, regardless of your educational stature or your economic level, it doesn't matter because we're all the same, right? Black right. people are all the same and we all must be uneducated, right? Because that's how we're portrayed, right? Like that we must be stupid, dumb, not knowledgeable. We don't care about our health. We don't care about our families. We all, we know that to be incorrect, but those are the biases that people carry and they reflect heavily in how we are treated in the healthcare system. And that has to change. Everyone always talks about, oh, well, we could start with um, looking at um, bias training in medical school. By the time you're a medical student, you are a grown adult. Right. You already have these biases very much entrenched in who you are. That's the issue. So when we try to pretend that this is just about historical atrocities, it's belittling our everyday experience. And that is indeed problematic. The, the program and the things that you were just talking about that, you know, that, that inclusion program is so important because yeah, yep. They're starting too late in trying to understand these, you know, how to deal with certain uh, populations, but you, you have to start somewhere. I mean, you have to, cause we have people in community health centers where they just mainly the majority of their population are people of color or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, that right. little population. Like you got to be able to know how to talk to people in, in you general. Know how to, and you actually come. have to, you have to value who they and are. Value as a human. who they are. Absolutely. Right. And right now, I think that there's a lack of valuation, meaning you, not you, but people in the healthcare setting presume that we're lesser than. And then you, mm -hmm. if you think of something as lesser than and inferior, you treat people that way, you know, unless you were raised in such a way that you treat everyone you know, of us, regardless of what their stature is. I treat my patients that are the who's who. I have these very famous patients. And then I have patients that, you know, are part of the custodial staff. I don't treat them any differently from each other. I think that they both deserve respect. They both took me to be taught that their life matters because they often don't believe it too, right? Because right. they've been told that they don't matter. I need them to know that they do matter. So that's that's something that's really part of, of how I think about this, Corey. Right, right. That, yeah. I really enjoy those insights. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And, and you know, and just based off of, you know, the, the a lot of the reading that I, I've read, you've been really, really into not education, but educating these doctors on, you know, not to change the subject completely, but um, a lot of physicians aren't really educated on ob obesity or certain things. Yes. You know, when they become, you know, when they're a doctor, there's just very, very little nutrition and, and obesity education. You know, what, yes. what are your thoughts on, you know, how, how are you trying to help in that situation? And what are some things that people can do? Well, first of all, you're hundred percent right. I actually, as you know, I'm a scientist, so I, I do a lot of research. And one of the studies that I did or completed 
um, back in, I don't know if it was 2019 or 2020. I think it was definitely pre-COVID. That's how I think things either pre-COVID or post-COVID. Um, yep. So it was pre-COVID, um, but not too far pre-COVID, that I looked at education about obesity for physicians in medical schools, residencies, and fellowships throughout the entire world. Um, so I didn't limit it to the United States. And the reason I didn't limit it to the United States is someone who speaks both here in the U.S. and around the world. I felt like I needed to capture what's going on. Obesity is not just here in the United States. It's everywhere. And so if physicians aren't being educated about it, then you can imagine that other people have no idea, right? So if we, we have to at least start there. You know, on the first day of medical school, we begin learning about things like diabetes and heart disease and things of that sort. And we can then spout off, you know, countless facts and figures and, you know, pathophysiology. And then you ask a simple question about the most prevalent chronic disease, which is obesity, right? It affects over 42% of adults, over about 20% of kids. Um, and then when we look at racial and ethnic minority populations, particularly the Black population, the Hispanic population, for example, um, we see much higher levels. Um, but if we don't know how to treat it and we treat, don't treat it and we kind of skip over it, then I think it's important for us to recognize that we're doing a disservice to our patients. We're doing a disservice to our patients because we didn't learn, but maybe it's incumbent upon us to learn. It's part of why I give you know over 100 lectures a year on the topic of obesity to physicians throughout the country and throughout the world. Last year, I did lectures in Qatar and Melbourne, Australia, and the UK. I mean, the goal for me is not to, to keep the, the knowledge in my brain. I need right. to spread it broadly so that whomever I'm talking to then can go and treat their patient population. Um, and so that's how I, I look at that. Right. So for those that, that don't know, you know, what is obesity? So, you know, the definition is interesting, but we'll, we'll go by how it's defined here in the United States, and then I'll give you more of a, a better clinical definition. So how we define obesity in the United States is by this BMI or body mass index criteria, persons that have, we're going to focus on adults because it's a little bit different for kids, um, and I won't get into the whole pediatrics things that'll have growth charts in front of me, but um, if you have a body mass index greater than or equal to 30, then that means you have obesity based upon these definitions. And then there's mild, moderate, severe obesity, BMIs of 30 to 34.9 being mild obesity, BMIs of 35 to 39.9 being moderate obesity, and then those that have severe obesity, a body mass index greater than or equal to 40. Now, while I think body mass index is a great population-wide measure to kind of see where people lie. It doesn't get into what happens when I am individually working with the patient or where you're individually working with the patient, because it's not just your weight itself. It's where that weight's distributed. That's extremely important. So we want to make sure that there's no adipose or fat. Adipose is an actual organ. It's not just a name we call people, which hopefully you're not doing, whoever's <laughs> listening. Um, it's an actual organ. Adipose is fat. Adiposity, when you hear that, if you ever hear that, you'll be like, oh, Dr. Stanford taught me that. Adiposity is the accumulation of fat. But what we find in patients that have obesity is that they do have a higher accumulation of adipose, this fat organ. Fat is an organ that is active, biologically active. That's often regulated by how the brain, and there's a particular part of the brain that really regulates our weight. It's called the hypothalamus. It tells us how much to eat and how much to store. But people think it's all about just what they've done. Now, yes, can we focus on behaviors and 
make sure you're not drinking sugar sweetened beverages and eating candy and cake and um, pies and pizza and fries. Absolutely. That's part of it. But even the drive to eat those things often is driven by what our brain tells us mm -hmm. to do. So I don't have a craving for certain key things that people, I hate fried chicken. I know I'm from the South, but I hate <laughs> fried chicken. Um, I think it's disgusting. I hate the oil. I hate the grease. It's just like, just, it, it, it irks every part of me. Um, I'm one of those people that if you're in the South and you see me eat, I do eat chicken. I'll take the skin off and then I'll have to soak it with like all these paper towels and then like, you know, to, to get to it. So obviously I, that's what I, I used to do in med school. Cause for some reason, all of, all of the lunches in med school were fried chicken. Um, I was in, in Georgia, so I don't know. About that. But the whole point is not just about that. That is, a, that is an important component, lifestyle. But there are, you know, obesity runs in families. Mm -hmm. So for example, we learn in medical school how to calculate midfrontal height. What that means, you guys, is that if we have tall parents, we expect the kids to be tall. So if you, you got Shaq and you got Lisa Leslie, I mean, you would expect them to have tall kids. I mean, let's just... I mean, the likelihood that they'd have a four foot 11 child, Very you know, low. once they're an yeah. adult, low, but could happen. You know, anything can happen, but pr probably a small minority. If you have people that are extremely short, like a Kevin Hart and someone else, you know, you would expect <laughs> right. them to be shorter kids, you know, and when the way we think about height is, you know, I think that's reasonable, but it's important to recognize that if parents have obesity, the likely kid, likely that your kid will have obesity is very high. Right. It's on the order of 50 to 85% likelihood, even if you do everything perfectly once they're born and get here. You can breastfeed them for the first year of life. You can make sure they have no additional screen time and they're eating pureed vegetables that you make in your homemade blender. That's all great, but they came from you, right. the you milieu from which exactly. And so then people come to me, I see patients between the ages of two and 90 and I probably see a three-year-old who's already 80 pounds. And then I ask the parents what their weight status is. And then the grandparents and everyone has severe obesity and they're shocked that the three-year-old has severe obesity. And I'm like, but are we, are we, are we missing something? Because I'm looking at the whole family here. Mm. And so I end up treating the whole family. You know, it takes some time often to get them all and engaged, but I have several patients or several families where I'm taking care of five different family members across three generations because like i said this can there's a stronger genetic component what i run into people often using the genetics as an excuse as well oh no 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 so you can't do that you can't yeah. do that okay so yes genetics plays a large role it doesn't mean you just don't do anything you know if i look at for example my family and i would have to go probably several generations but if i look at my maternal grandmother my maternal grandmother um, definitely had obesity. I would say that it was probably moderate to severe if I, you know, think about it. Not when she, when she eventually passed, um, obviously when patients develop dementia, there's a, a major shift. But, um, if you go to her in her forties, like where I am, or, you know, she had severe obesity. Uh, my grandfather did not on that side, neither did my maternal and paternal grandparents, but that's a huge, I mean, that's a part of, who I am. There's genetics and there's epigenetics, meaning across generations. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could just be like, oh, you know what? I'm just not going to work out. I'm not going to eat healthy. I'm not going to do any of these things. Cause you know what? My, my paternal grandmother, she had obesity. Yep. That's ridiculous. Let's think about that. So it's just like you saying that, oh, you know what? My, my maternal grandmother had cancer. And so I'm just not, I don't really care about 
being healthy because, you know, I'm just going to get cancer. You don't really know that. I mean, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't do that with anything else, but we do it with obesity. I want you guys who are listening to think about that. It's absolutely absurd. Um, That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my whole family's big bone, so it you know it is what it is. I I someone's literally. Well, the funny me. thing is, is not is not the big bone. So this is the funny thing. I always like to dispel this in black communities. This idea <laughs> of big boned. I just the big bone. It's wrong. So I did orthopedics, you guys. So that means that I got to see actual bones of people that had obesity. And what is very interesting, for example, if you're doing a total knee replacement. Mm-hmm. which means that we have to fit a new knee right in your bones. And we have to size it out based upon the size of your bones. People that had obesity and the more severe they had, had smaller bones than the people that were leaner. So it's not the bones. I don't know where we got that idea from, but it's not the bones. The bones of people that have obesity actually are much <laughs> smaller because there's a lot of pressure put on the bones. Mm. So anyway, that's that's another soapbox moment for yes, myself. Yes, um, myth destroyed on the healthy project podcast. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) So, you know, how is, you know, how does with your, with your experience working with patients, how does obesity affect, you know, someone's Mm -hmm. everyday life? Oh, affects everything. I mean, I, I, like I told you, I see patients across a large age spectrum. Um, and just the ability, depending upon the severity of the disease, right? So especially I take a lot of patients with severe obesity and, when you're listening to what they like to do with, with what they can do, meaning like physical activity, oh, I really enjoy doing that, but it just hurts too much. Yep. Or I can't quite get my body to move in that way, but I really want to be able to. Or maybe back when I was 10 years old, I was able to do that. And now I'm 65 and I'm unable to do that. And so that's physical functioning, but it also affects mental functioning. Mental, not like, oh, I can't think to do something. But how I think about my interaction with the world, how I think I'm perceived, the bias that I might receive because of my excess weight. What we do know is the two more two most common forms of bias here in the United States are number one, race bias, bias against someone yep. because of their race. And then the second most common form of bias, a very close second, is weight bias. So let's say you're a black woman, right? So we have black, and then we have that has obesity. You can imagine that what that woman might experience is going to be, you know, several fold higher than even a white person with obesity because of that interplay between race and weight. Okay. What that often affects is things such as hiring. You know, I have been in the situation, I remember having a patient back when I was in residency who applied for a job as a secretary. on a unit in the hospital. Very qualified candidate. You know, if you looked at her background and her expertise and skills, I was not part of the hiring process. I was a resident. This was the nurses were really in charge of that. One day as I was on call in the hospital, I happened to pass by where the nurses were having a meeting. Their door was a little bit open. I mean, I don't think you could have heard it if you were like a patient, but I was in part Mm -hmm. of, you know, I was, you know, dealing the patient care. So I was in the inner circles. And I heard them laughing about this woman. They were like, well, how can she do her job? Have you seen how big she is? Okay. They didn't say how qualified she is Mm. to do her role. There was no talk about her qualification. The entire focus of this conversation that I happened to just randomly pass by the room as they were discussing had to do with her size. 
So when I saw this patient in follow-up and she was like, well, have you heard anything about it? I told you I'm not part of the decision-making, but I did hear. I can't then tell her, oh, well, I know they're going to rule you out because of your size, but that's exactly why they chose to do that. This weight discrimination based upon body size and habitus is pervasive. Right. I have one patient that I um, began taking care of many years ago, let's say about seven, eight years ago, um, who went into a local retailer to try to get hired for a role. Um, and it was something, you know, kind of a, a very, you know, very basic job. She was told within the first minute, oh, you know, she wasn't qualified for the role. And she thought that was interesting. We did a lot of work together over the course of, let's say, two to three years. She lost about 125 pounds or so. So a very different human. Um, and she's the same person, but how right. she appears, very different. She went into the exact same retailer who happened to have the exact same hiring manager and was hired on the spot. So nothing changed. She didn't go back and get any additional degrees or training. She's the exact same person. So we're looking at her compared to her. And she was hired on the spot. It was about a month or two into her job that she actually went to the hiring manager and said, look, I came in here, you know, three years ago. And I was told I wasn't qualified. I'm the exact same person. I have not done any additional training, et cetera, but you hired me on the spot. And so she called them out on saying, like, I really think that it had to do with how I look. This is what I used to look like. And she had a picture. Um, She felt empowered to do that. Mm. I think that is amazing that she had the ability to go and do that and to express that it was just not right. Right. Um, Others often don't do that. Some people don't get the opportunity. I was speaking at an obesity medicine conference, actually, and I was doing an entire lecture on weight bias and stigma. And after I got off the stage, you know, well, this is pre-COVID, right? I got off the stage, you always have these people come up and they want to talk to you. And one of the gentlemen that came up, these are all physicians, by the way, was like, well, would you hire someone with obesity? And I said, are they qualified? And he's like, yes. And I said, well, why wouldn't I hire them? And then he tries to explain to me why it would not be a good idea to hire them because of higher absenteeism, meaning missing work or this, that, or the other because of their size. And I just thought it was really appalling that here I am at an obesity medicine conference, with all obesity medicine physicians, and he's trying to convince the speaker that just gave an hour long lecture on why you should not discriminate <laughs> to discriminate based upon size. And this happened to be a black man. I said, so should I not hire you because you're black? Because black men are all problematic, right? Mm. And that caused him to take pause. But he was exact. That's exactly what he's basically telling me. Oh, I should just not hire those people over there right. because like of this one trait. If you're not aesthetically pleasing, you can't do your job. That's right. <laughs> ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. But this is this is unfortunately what people believe, what they think, what they feel, and then how they interact with people that have obesity. And then, like I said, when you add that race piece on top of it, oh my goodness. Right. So those are my thoughts there. Yeah. Right. There are, yeah, there's a lot. The, the more and more I, I, I listen, you know, Dr. Stanford is mm-hmm. a lot of this is either a lot of this about obesity or, or what everything we've talked about today, everyone's perceived idea of mm-hmm. it. Like it right. has, like when it comes to treating people of color with respect it's a perceived oh they're they're black or they're brown right this is my perception of them or if they're overweight this is my perception of them 
and it mm-hmm. all starts in our mindset. And it's just so interesting to me because I could talk about fruits and vegetables all day with, you know, a, a family or, mm-hmm. it, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it means something, but the way I'm talking to them are, are I'm right. If I'm like, you need to eat vegetables because you know that you know, you don't eat them, right? The assumption, right. right? That if people yes. have obesity, that they're doing something wrong and maybe they can make some modifications, but it's important for me to listen. So I, I like to bring up patients and in my interactions with patients because they really <laughs> help shape how I think. So I had a, a woman who was a new patient yesterday. She was a 65 year old woman um, who has tried every diet under the sun. Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, South Beach, Atkins, Overeaters Anonymous. I mean, she just, I mean, she's done really it all. Um, she tells me that with all of these plans, she loses between eight to 10 pounds and then she can't, then it, then it comes right back. And I was like, okay. Then she has all these other medical issues um, and she has heart issues. So, you know, certain, um, she's being followed very closely by cardiology. And so she, I asked her, well, what, what treatment should I use for you? You just told me, okay, you tried all the diets. You're still eating very healthy. You know, your husband eats one thing. You go and make a whole different meal for yourself. Um, you can't use a lot of certain medications like that we might use for obesity because you have certain key heart issues. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what is there to use? And she's like, I don't know, maybe another diet. And I'm like, really? You just told, I mean, you just named like 40 like different diets. Like, right. am I going to do that again? I said, what's the definition of insanity? doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Right. And she's like, okay. I said, so what do you want me? What do I do? I think you should do. And she's like, Oh, maybe an exercise. I said, you just told me you get a minimum of 10,000 steps every day. Like, so, I mean, I could give you 20,000, but like, is that going to really shift right. you? I doesn't sound like, so I was trying to get her to understand that she's tried everything. We need to now go to surgery. Like but she, she's been trying right. for 65 years, all these things and worked. So, and so, I needed her to hear herself tell me the story. Mm, yep. I summarized the story for her to then to the light button, hopefully to go off for her to understand. Oh, I see what you're saying, Dr. Stanford. I get it. Right. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Like sometimes people need to hear them hear. They need to talk it out with someone else. Right. To get the, exactly. To get the answer. Because exactly. you, you know it's there, but you just you just don't want to just tell them, right? Yes. But some people just have to talk it out, and then the light bulb goes off. It's like, okay, I, I got to make this next move. Right, exactly. Right. So, I mean, I, you know, for a lot of it's, you know, uh, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. It's like, you know, I have to, I always tell my, especially my adult patients, I'm like, look, you're grown. You're going to do whatever you want to do. I can give you my expert opinion but ultimately it's up to you. And so I always tell my patients, look, we can, we can try your way. You can try your way. Initially, I will give you a deadline on trying to get your way because we've already seen you try it your way, which is why you're here to see me, but I'll give you, I'll give you another six months to a year, depending upon what the issue is. And if my, if your way doesn't work, then maybe we should consider my way. Like maybe there's a reason why you waited for me to, um, see you for nine months, you know, mm-hmm. however long you had to wait to see. So that's exactly, you know, kind of how I think about this. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, Dr. Stanford, I want to be mindful yeah. of your time, but I got one more question yeah. for you. I, okay. I, that's fine. Yes. Yeah. So looking at the, you know, we talked a lot about the healthcare system and, and healthcare. Mm-hmm. If in a perfect world, how would 
what are some things or maybe one thing that you would change about the healthcare system that you think can improve or at least be a part of the foundation of a new healthcare system? I mean, I think that everyone should have access to healthcare. I think healthcare is a human right. Um, however that looks, I mean, I think that we have debates on how we would get to that. Um, here in Massachusetts, we have what it was Romney Care, so Mitt Romney Care before Obamacare. So that's how um, the Affordable Care Act came to be based upon our system here in Massachusetts. So about 98%, slightly higher than 98% of our patients here in the in Massachusetts are insured. There is some form of insurance. Now it definitely varies. Like, you know, my tier of what I have as a doctor is, you know, at Mass General is here and then someone else may have it. But the fact that everyone has access to some coverage, I think is extremely important. But I think it's incumbent upon us and health and health care and the system itself to recognize the disparities that are entrenched within the system based upon how we value or devalue certain populations. There should be active metrics to discern what patients experience, how they're experiencing it by racial ethnic lines so that people can recognize their errors and their ways and begin to work to change those errors. You don't know how bad something is until you measure it, and then you can't change it until you know it's a problem. Um, So for example, one of the studies that came out of our institution was looking at whether you know, the care between resident physicians versus attending physicians like myself, does it differ? And if so, are only a certain type of population seeing the resident only group? You know, is it just that we put all of our minority patients in that category? And then if so, why is that? So you have to begin to do the studies, but people have to have that thought process, that lens by which to begin to think, to recognize that look, we need to do better. So, I mean, there's so much that can be done. It's It will take lifetimes, plural, you know, for us mm-hmm. to begin to do that. But we have to have people that are actively consciously thinking about these things do this work. So I think that that's important. And we have to, like I said, have value added to that work. So I think that's extremely important. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So um, again, thank you for your time, Dr. Stanford. If anybody listening to this episode wanted to reach out to you and get to know you a little bit more, where can they find you at? They can find me on all of the social media platforms, um, Twitter, Instagram. I'm Ask Dr. Fatima. So A-S-K-D-R-F-A-T-I-M-A. I never have time for anything. I work 8,200 hours a week, but you can see all of the 15 million things that I'm doing. Um, and hopefully use that to spur, um, you know, change for others. That's, that's the goal. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and, um, everyone, thank you for listening to the healthy project podcast. I'll highlight you next time. Love this episode of the healthy project podcast, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review is very much appreciated. Be sure to visit www.healthcoachlou.com to join the community newsletter, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.